Chapter thirty four of the Life of Kit Carson by Edward S. Ellis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Kit Carson's old friend Maxwell, who had been his companion in so many stirring adventures, joined him in San Francisco, whose marvelous growth, even at that remote day, was a continual surprise and delight. As the two mountaineers made their way through the streets, where but a few years before all was a wild, untrodden wilderness, they paused and indulged in many wondering exclamations as though they were a couple of countrymen, visiting the metropolis for the first time in their lives. The couple concluded to make their way home by the southern route, passing in the neighborhood of the Gila, but the distance could be shortened so much by taking the steamer to Los Angeles that Maxwell decided to adopt that course. When he asked Carson to join him, the mountaineer shook his head. I got enough of that in 1846, he said, alluding to his brief voyage, when serving under Fremont in California at the beginning of the Mexican War. I never was so sick in all my life. You ain't likely to be sick again, pleaded Maxwell. And if you are, it don't last long. You'll save two or three weeks in time and enjoy yourself much more. But it was no use. Carson said he never would venture upon salt water again, and he would rather ride a thousand miles on the back of a mule than to sail a hundred in a ship. Accordingly, the party separated for the time, and Maxwell took steamer to Los Angeles, where he arrived fully two weeks in advance of Carson, who rode into the quaint old town on the back of a somewhat antiquated mule. They were soon ready for their long ride, when they struck a leisurely pace, and all went well until they reached the Gila. There they entered a region which had been visited by one of those droughts which continue sometimes for many months. The grass was so dry and parched that it contained scarcely any nourishment, and the friendly Pimos told them, if they pushed on, their animals were sure to die of starvation. It was impossible to doubt these statements, and Carson therefore proposed a new route, which, though very rough and difficult in some places, would furnish all the forage that was required. The course led them along the Gila to the mouth of the San Pedro, and finally with little difficulty they reached the copper mines of New Mexico. Shortly after, Carson encountered the Mormon delegate to Congress. During the exchange of courtesies, the gentleman conveyed the interesting information that he, Carson, had been made Indian agent for New Mexico. The news was a surprise and a great pleasure to the mountaineer. He had no thought of any such honor, and with all his modesty could not but feel that he was eminently fitted for the performance of its duties. No one had traveled so extensively through the West, and no one could understand the nature of Native Americans better than he. A hundred tribes knew of Father Kit, as he soon came to be called, and they referred to him as a man who never spoke with a double tongue and who was just toward them at all times. He had ventured among the hostels more than once where the bravest white man dared not follow him, and had spent days and nights in their lodges without being offered the slightest indignity. Kit Carson was brave, truthful, kind, and honest. Aside from the gratification which one naturally feels when receiving an appointment that is pleasant in every respect, and which he holds thoroughly in hand, as may be said, the honest mountaineer was especially delighted over the thought that his government conferred it without any solicitation on his part. 
but the man who accepts the position of Indian agent and conscientiously attends to its duties has no sinecure on his hands. Many of them use it as such, while others do still worse, thereby sowing the seeds which speedily develop into Indian outrages, massacres, and wars. When Carson reached Taos, he had his official bond made out, and sent it with his thanks and acceptance of his appointment to the proper authorities in Washington. The Indian agent for New Mexico had scarcely entered upon his new duties when trouble came. A branch of the Apaches became restless and committed a number of outrages on citizens. Stern measures only would answer, and a force of dragoons was sent against them. They dealt them a severe blow, killing one of their most famous chiefs besides a considerable number of warriors. Instead of quieting the tribe, it rather intensified their anger though they remained quiescent for a time through fear. Not long after, Carson was notified that a large party of the tribe were encamped in the mountains, less than twenty miles from Taos. He decided at once to supplement the work of the sword with the gentle arguments of peace. This proceeding on the part of the Indian agent is one deserving of special notice, for it shows no less the bravery of Carson than it does the philanthropic spirit which actuated him at all times in his dealings with the red men. Alas, that so few of our officials today deem his example worth their imitation. The venture was so dangerous that Carson went alone, unwilling that anyone else should run the risk. When he arrived at their encampment, he made his way without delay to the presence of the leaders, whom he saluted in the usual elaborate fashion, and then proceeded to state the important business that took him thither. Nearly every warrior in camp recognized the short, thick-set figure and the broad, pleasant face when they presented themselves. They knew he was one of the most terrible warriors that ever charged through a camp of red men. He had met them many a time in fierce warfare, but he always fought warriors and not papooses and squaws. He was the bravest of the brave, and therefore they respected him. But he was a truthful and just man. He had never lied to them, as most of the white men did, and he had shown his confidence in them by walking alone and unattended into the very heart of their encampment. They were eager to rend to shreds every pale-face upon whom they could lay hands, but Father Kit was safe within their lodges and wigwams. Carson made an admirable speech. He at first caused every serpent-like eye to sparkle by his delicate flattery. Then he tried hard to convince them that their hostility to the whites could result only in injury to themselves, since the great father at Washington had hundreds and thousands of warriors whom he would send to replace such as might lose their lives. Then, when he made known that the same great father had appointed him to see that justice was done them, they grinned with delight, and gathering around overwhelmed him with congratulations. The agent insisted that they should prove their sincerity by pledging to follow the line of conduct he had lain down, and they did so with such readiness that a superficial observer would have declared the mission a complete success. But Kit Carson thought otherwise. He knew the inherent treachery of the aboriginal nature, and his estimate of Apache loyalty was the true one. The most that he was warranted in feeling was the hope that those furious warriors would be less aggressive than had been their custom. 
though they had expressed a willingness to make any agreement which he might propose yet it was their very willingness to do so which caused his distrust had they been more argumentative and more tenacious of their rights their sincerity might have been credited the agent could have secured their consent almost to any agreement but the sagacious official asked as little as he could and i don't believe they mean to keep even that agreement he muttered as he bade the effusive sachems and warriors good-bye and made his way back to taos End of chapter thirty four